think for a minute with me about your political leaders. What do you look for in your political leaders? Do you have expectations for them? Do you think that your political leaders need to come from the right family? Perhaps be a Roosevelt, a Kennedy, or a Bush? Do you think they have to come from the right Ivy League school? Do they have to come from the rich and famous in society for you to vote for them, for you to get behind them? You know, as Americans, I think most of us are more democratic than that, aren't we? We don't have such high expectations for our leaders. Ours are more ordinary, being in the democratic country that we're in. I wonder if you follow the royal family in Britain at all. They seem to still show up in our news over 200 years after we threw off their oppressive government. Do you watch royal weddings when they happen? Do you anticipate them, read all the news, keep up with the gossip? Watch with wonder at the pomp and circumstance and tradition? Do you anticipate royal births? Excited about each and every accessory? $2,000 strollers, or prams as they call them. Nations with a monarchy see the qualifications for their leaders quite differently than we do as Americans. For people in a a monarchy, a, a nation with a king and a queen, who your parents are are essential to whether or not you're qualified to be the leader. It's expected that a queen or a king is born to the right parents, born in a palace, comes from the right city, London, educated in the right schools. You know, this is closer to the expectations that Jews in Israel would have had 2,000 years ago as they awaited their Messiah king. And when their promised king arrived, most people did not recognize him because he did not meet their expectations for what their political leader, for what their king was supposed to be. But their response to the actual king was of the utmost importance. And brothers and sisters, this morning, our response to Israel's king is of the utmost importance. We have begun a series in the Gospel of Luke in the New Testament. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Luke. It's the third book in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. We saw a few weeks ago as we began studying Luke chapter 1 that God's promised plan had begun through prophecies and angelic visitations through two miraculous conceptions and birth, births. One, the conception of an old woman giving birth. The other, the conception of a virgin giving birth. And in this way, all of the hopes and the promises that Israel was waiting for was dawning, was beginning to take place. In our passage, in Luke chapter 2, we actually see the birth of this promised king, King Jesus. And if you're taking notes, 
our main point from the text this morning is this. Main point from Luke chapter 2 is this. King Jesus is God become man. King Jesus is God become man. Luke 2, we are able to see what the incarnation is all about. God in the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, the eternal God, the pre-existent Son of God, became man. And as we walk through all 52 verses of Luke chapter 2, we will have four points. Four points this morning. Point number one, the king is born, verses 1 to 7. Point number one, the king is born. Point number two, the king is announced. Point number two, the king is announced, verses 8 to 20. Point number three, the king is recognized. Point number three, the king is recognized, verses 21 to 38. And point number four, the king grows. Point number four, the king grows, verses 39 to 52. It's my hope this morning that as we look at Israel's promised king, Jesus, that we would respond to him in faith and that we would follow him. As we begin, let me read the first seven verses here of Luke chapter 2. And as we begin, point number one, the king is born. This is God's word. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the end. Point number one, the king is born. I'm sure many of us have memorized Luke chapter 2. I'm sure for many of us who've been Christians for some time, this passage is familiar to us. I want you to to notice a few things about this passage. One is at the very beginning, the greatest political leader of their day is mentioned. Caesar, Augustus. But he's mentioned almost as an aside that he had made a decree for a census to happen. But the greatest political leader of all of the Roman Empire was calling for a census. But it is this little king, Caesar Augustus, who is a pawn in the hand of God. You see, as this great political leader is mentioned, he's simply mentioned as a character in the process of the providence of God as God is bringing all of his promises to fulfillment. Caesar Augustus makes a census, and God uses Caesar Augustus to bring Mary and Joseph from the north of Palestine, Nazareth and Galilee, down to the south, to Judea, closer to Jerusalem, to a particular city, the city of Bethlehem, a promised 
city, the place where, according to the prophet Micah in Micah 5.2, where this promised king would be born. So God used this political leader, Caesar Augustus, to bring the mother of the Lord 90 miles south from Nazareth all the way to Bethlehem. Now, imagine this, if you will. The amazing thing about this is how slight the narrative is. There's hardly any details given. Simply that Joseph and Mary traveled all the way to Bethlehem, the place of Joseph's family lineage, where Jesse and David were originally from, in order that they might be registered with the rest of their family. But imagine the scene. Many people have spent a lot of time trying to fill in the gaps. If you've watched any children's movies about the nativity, there's usually a donkey. There's usually a stable. There's usually an innkeeper. But none of those things are mentioned. We're trying to fill in the gaps and make sense of what's happening here. There's a lot happening, but the narrative is very slight and emphasizing a couple of things. What isn't emphasized is the difficulty of the journey, but it is assumed. It says that she is very pregnant, great with child. Mary is about to be born, and she traveled with Joseph 90 miles. Now, I'm sure this wasn't in line with her birth plan. For her first child, as many of us who've had children know, we have plans. We want to control our circumstances. We want things to be according to our expectations. And yet the birth of Mary's first child was clearly not in accord with her expectations. Rather than being with her family, rather than being with her mother, rather than being surrounded by family and the support that's there, She leaves all of that behind to be registered with her betrothed, Joseph, in a foreign city 90 miles south. It doesn't say that she had a donkey. She might have walked. It seems that they were so poor that they weren't able to afford a place in the inn, or at least an inn that they could afford. And so as they give birth, they're giving birth somewhere outside of warm hospitality in a place where animals were, which is, the, uh, which is what this point that she laid him in a manger is making, that they are outside of the warm hospitality of a home or of an inn. Now think of this scene. Is this the kind of political leader in terms of a birth story that you would expect? Is Jesus' birth meeting your expectations if you put yourself in the shoes of an Israelite for what their king's birth should look like? Is this anywhere close to what we would expect? As one writer puts it, these two details, the necessity of a manger and the lack of room with normal society are both significant and unexpected. This writer continues, why would God's own son, the expected Davidic Messiah, be born in such a way? This scandalous set of circumstances points forward to Jesus' future rejection by his own people, the shame and embarrassment of death on a cross. 
The unexpected setting of Jesus' birth also anticipates the unexpected way in which Jesus would go about putting things right in God's creation. His life and death did not match people's expectations. He wasn't born like a king. He didn't live like a king. And he certainly didn't die like a king. But he was nonetheless God's promised and long-awaited king. I wonder what you make of Jesus this morning. I wonder what you make of a story like this. If you're here and you're not a Christian, I wonder if Jesus meets your expectations for the kind of leader that you would follow. Regardless of whether he meets your expectations, do you know that he is the king? He's not just the king of some quaint country 2,000 years ago that had some strange birth story. No, this is the king, the promised Messiah. And not just the Messiah of Israel, but the Messiah of the whole world. He is the king, God become man, who rules over everything and will judge everyone. He may not meet your expectations, but he is the king. I wonder this morning as you consider a passage like this. If you struggle at times with God's sovereignty in your life, perhaps your experiences aren't meeting your expectations. Perhaps you're busy trying to control things. Maybe an actual birth plan is a way that you try to control every circumstance in your life. But do you know that God is sovereignly working behind everything that happens? Everything that happens in terms of the birth of Jesus in Bethlehem? all the way down to everything that happens in your life? Do you know that he has good in store for you, even when he disrupts your expectations? That he has good in store for you, even when he interrupts your plans? It is a way for him to enter into your life and give you an opportunity to trust him. That's point number one. Point number one, the king is born. Point number two, the king is announced, verses 8 to 20. I'm not going to read all of this, but look here at verses 8 to 20. Not only is the king born, but the king is then announced. The king is announced. Now, the announcement might not happen the way that we would expect either. I don't know if you've had a child, and sent out a birth announcement. I know that we have with each of our children. We've announced it through emails. Remember email? (laughs) We've announced it through social media, through Facebook, through Instagram. Look, here's our baby. And we've announced it for our family and for our friends to know what's happening in our lives so they can rejoice with us. This announcement is a different kind of announcement. It's actually the announcement of a royal birth. The announcement that a king has been born. Do you know that we have records of Caesar Augustus, of his birth when he was born as a baby, sent out by Caesar. And it was sent to dignitaries, and it was sent to governors so that they could announce it to the people. And actually, the the word good news and the word savior is used in that birth announcement. But this royal announcement is a little odd. Look at who it goes to. Does it go to King Herod? Does it go to Quirinius? Does it go to Pilate? Or not not Pilate, Pilate's predecessor, 
the, the Roman governor there in Jerusalem. No, where does this announcement go? Does it go to, to great people? Look at verse 8. In the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. Here again, we have the third now angel visitation in the book of Luke. If you add the visitation to Joseph in the book of Matthew, here's a fourth angel visitation in these early days of God visiting his people through John the Baptist's birth and now the birth of the King Jesus. The angels are God's messenger. The the word angel means messenger. They are God's assistants, his servants, and they are sent by him to do his bidding. These angels go with this message and they go to an odd place and they visit odd people. Many Scholars have tried to figure out the significance of the shepherds, whether there's some significance with the connection of Jesus, who is going to be the great shepherd, or Jesus, who's going to be the lamb. Luke doesn't seem to focus in on that. What seems obvious here is the ordinariness of the people that get the announcement. Shepherds were seen as the lowest of society, the most ordinary people, like your average Joe. And yet the angels come to them. Now the significance of this is twofold. It isn't Mary and Joseph giving the announcement. You would think it would be the parents' opportunity to announce the birth of their baby. Because ultimately this baby isn't theirs. The announcement comes from heaven. The announcement comes from God. Because Jesus has come from God. He is God become man. And so the announcement comes from angels... Because the announcement is God's good news and message to give. The message comes from heaven. It's also significant in terms of who it's coming to. It isn't coming to the rich and the famous, to the politically connected and the important. No, it's coming to ordinary people. People that no one would think to send this message to. And do you see the message in verse 10? Tells, angel tells them not to be afraid, very similar to Zechariah and Mary. And he tells them, unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And then the angel gives them a sign. Now look at the message. Don't be afraid. I bring you good news. It's news of great joy that will be for some of the people that will be for some important people that will be for the Jews. No, who is this announcement for? It's for all people. And he says in verse 11 that this child that is born is born for you. Unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Now think of that statement. Angels are speaking for God. And they're saying, when this baby was born in Bethlehem, you didn't know it yet, but this baby was born for you. was born for you. This wonderful message is the good news of the gospel. 
that God is working a work of redemption and that his work of redemption that begins with the incarnation of a baby being born in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago, that this is for you. It's for you if you will receive it by faith and repent of your sins. Christ has been born for you if you will turn from your sins and trust in him as the Savior, the King of the world. You see, Jesus, in being born, is beginning God's plan of redemption that would continue on through his faithfulness and obeying the law, being the perfect human representative for sinners like us, and would continue all the way through his sacrificial death on the cruel cross on Good Friday and result in his glorious resurrection where he would show his power over sin and death as he got up from the grave, turning death backwards, bringing life forever to any that would receive him. This plan of redemption, it is for all people. It is for anyone who would receive it. Christ is born for you, brother, sister, if you will receive him. He is a king. He is a savior. And he has come to save sinners like you and me. The Bible is clear that all of us have sinned. That we have turned from him as our good and loving creator and king and judge. That we've rejected him in our sin. And that we deserve his judgment. The wonderful message of this first Christmas is that God had a plan of redemption to save sinners who did not deserve his mercy and grace, but yet are offered it. Jesus is born for you if we will respond in repentance and faith. Let me encourage you, if you're here and you're not a Christian, see verse 11 of Luke chapter 2 as hope for you. This baby born is the king. He is the savior. And he's born for you if you would receive him. The angels then join the first angel in verse 13, praising God, giving glory to him in verse 14. Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. I'm not sure what you think about angels We seem to go back and forth on an emphasis of the supernatural as human beings or wanting to deny the supernatural altogether. Some people want to deny any sort of supernatural beings. Others are so excited about them that they can get drawn into the kind of a a cult where they're wanting to worship angels and demons. You see, angels here are assumed to be real. There is more going on in this world than just what we can see. These supernatural beings are those created by God. They are spirit and not flesh like we are. That is not entirely physical like we are. They seem to be able to move around in our world and show up in our world and disappear. But they are God's servants and messengers. They serve him constantly. And surprisingly, according to Hebrews chapter 1, they're actually our servants as well. Hebrews 1 says that, the, that angels actually come and serve God's people, those who will be saved by him. There's always two opposite responses to angels, both of which are bad. One is 
completely ignoring them altogether and pretending that they don't exist. The other is getting too excited and interested in them. C.S. Lewis talks about this in his introduction to the Screwtape Letters. We as Christians should believe that angels exist because God tells us that angels exist. But we should focus our attention like the angels do, not on angels themselves, but on God and on the Christ, Jesus, that the angels come to proclaim and to focus on. These angels praise God, leave to heaven, and then the shepherds respond in faith. Look at verse 15. Let's go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they find things just as the angels had said. They find Mary and Joseph and the baby. Now look at the different responses at the end of this section. Verse 17. In verse 17, the shepherds are making known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. So here's the first eyewitnesses of these angels reporting what they saw to, it looks like, Mary and Joseph. They respond by testifying to what they had heard and seen. Get the second response in verse 18. All who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. A response of wonder. Look at the third response in verse 19. Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And then verse 20. The shepherds respond also by glorifying and praising God. They respond by imitating the angels and giving glory to God. Do you know all of these responses here are good and right responses to this message? In fact, all of them are the kinds of good and right responses that any of us who've come to hear and to see Jesus should do. We should testify to the things that we've seen, the things that we've heard. We should wonder at them as we reflect on the wonder of the Incarnation. We should treasure up these truths in our hearts. We should ponder them, meditate on them. And we should worship God and Christ in response to this good news that we've received. I wonder how you respond to this message. Perhaps you are doubting. Perhaps you are incredulous that such a ridiculous story could be true. Perhaps you're responding to a message like this and and laughing at the superstition of such strange shepherds. Do you know the, the only proper response is the response that's here? To believe it, to testify to it, to wonder at it, to treasure it up in your heart, to meditate and ponder, and then to give praise and glory to God. You know, that's why we as Christians gather on Sundays like this. We gather to hear the truth from God's word and to see Christ through hearing the message of the gospel. We come to to wonder at the amazing message that God, the holy God, is kind in showing grace and mercy to sinners like us. And then we treasure up the word and the truth in our hearts and we ponder over them. We meditate on them day and night. We take them with us and we allow this truth to lead us to give praise and glory to God. Let me encourage you, Christian, to continue on. Maybe life is discouraging you. Maybe your individual personal hopes for life 
are not panning out the way you expected. Let me encourage you to respond in wonder to this beautiful message that there is a Savior born for you. And give God praise. Wonder at the truth of the incarnation. Treasure up these truths and meditate on them day and night. Testify to them to any that you can speak to about Christ. And ultimately, give Him praise. The work of giving praise and glory to God in Christ is a work that we do on this earth, in this life. And it is the work that we will do forever in Christ's presence as we stand, not around His manger, but around His throne forever. That's point number two. The king is announced. Point number three, verses 21 to 38, the king is recognized. Point number three, verses 21 to 38, the king is recognized. Look at verse 21. At the end of eight days, according to the law, Jesus was circumcised. And then he was named, called by his earthly parents, Jesus. But he was named not by his earthly parents primarily, but he was named by God, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. Now the next scene is a scene in the temple in Jerusalem, not too far away from Bethlehem. When the child was eight years old, the parents, in obeying the law, and in obeying the angel, fulfill righteousness on Jesus' behalf. They obey the law of Moses and they obey the revelation of the angel that came from God. They go to the temple. They have him circumcised. They name him according to the name that they were given. And then they offer, verse 22, sacrifices according to the law of Moses in Exodus chapter 13. They're following here the law of the firstborn, that the firstborn child, the firstborn male, was to be dedicated to the Lord and then redeemed. By offering a sacrifice. Now they do this. Verse 24. According to what is said in the law of the Lord. And they offer a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now what this means, the only thing that this means, is that they are not wealthy. There were different sacrifices that could be given. A ram, sorry, um, a bull, a lamb... Or, if they could not afford that, two turtle doves or two pigeons. Jesus' parents offer two turtle doves or pigeons because they could not afford a lamb. Notice here, Jesus is born into poverty. Notice also that Jesus' parents are demonstrating their faith in God and ensuring that Jesus is fulfilling the law at every point. That he is the perfect son who is obeying God's law perfectly from the very beginning. Now, not only are Jesus' parents making sure that he's fulfilling the law, as they're there in the temple, something else goes on, starting in verse 25. He is recognized. He's recognized by two people. First, by an older man named Simeon. Look at verse 25. There was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. Verse 26, And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. 
So what happens on the day in which Jesus is coming to the temple to be circumcised and to be presented with this offering? Well, verse 26, sorry, 27. Simeon is led by the Holy Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child, Jesus, to do for him according to the custom of the law, verse 28, he took him up in his arms and blessed God. I'm not sure if we have any new parents here, but imagine being new parents for the first time. Having a little baby. And a stranger, a strange old man, shows up (laughs) and picks up your baby. How would you respond? I know how I would respond. I'd be nervous. I'd be fearful. But you see, this man is not a stranger to God. This man is actually part of God's family. And God has brought him into the temple at the same time in order that he might recognize Jesus for who he is. You see, he's not recognized by the king. He's not recognized by the religious leaders. He's recognized by a strange old man who's received a revelation from God. A revelation saying, you will not die, Simeon, until you see the Lord's Christ. And so being led by the Spirit, anticipating this baby that would be born, he finds Jesus. He picks him up in his arms. And he blesses God. And look at what he says as he blesses God. Verse 29. Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. That is, I can die now in peace because I am able to see what you have promised. Verse 30, my eyes have seen your salvation. Verse 31, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples. Verse 32, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. It's a wonderful Prayer slash prophecy. Here, Simeon is the one who recognizes Jesus for who he is. Look at how he describes him. He says, having seen Jesus, this little eight-day-old baby, verse 30, I have seen your salvation. I've seen, God, your salvation. And it's a salvation, verse 31, prepared in the presence of all people. You see that to see Jesus is to see God's salvation. And not only that, but verse 32, to see Jesus is also to see God's revelation. The staggering thing that Simeon says here, having seen Jesus, we see the salvation of the Lord. Having seen Jesus, we see God's revelation where God speaks to his people. You see, in the person of Jesus, God is no longer speaking through prophets, but God himself has shown up in the person of Jesus Christ. And when God, in the person of Jesus Christ, shows up to see Jesus, is to see the revelation of God. God revealed most clearly. As the writer of Hebrews puts it, God has now spoken in His Son. Jesus speaks the words of God to us by His life and by His words, by His life and by His death and by His resurrection. To see Jesus is to see God revealed. This salvation is expanding. It's expanding to ordinary people like the shepherds. It's expanding to ordinary men like Simeon. 
It's expanding to include not just Israel, according to verse 32, but the Gentiles also. You see, Simeon sees God's plan is not just a plan for Israel, but for all of the nations, for all people, for all kinds of people. This Jesus who has come is the salvation of the world for anyone, from any background, from any family or nation. If we would look at him and live. You see that Simeon holds his life incredibly loosely. That he's ready to die as soon as he has seen Christ. You see how loosely he holds his life. He thinks of his life of having no more importance than being able to see this Savior. This salvation. And then he's ready to die. He's ready to go. Lord, I, I can now go in peace. Having seen your salvation. Think of the Apostle Paul in the New Testament who says, to live is Christ, to die is gain. Those that know God hold this life loosely. And we're happy having seen our Savior Jesus to go and meet Him whenever God calls us. Look at verses 33 and following. His father and mother marvel at what was said about him. And then Simeon turns from blessing God, verse 34, to blessing them. And look at what he says, particularly to Mary, his mother. Look at this prophecy from Mary. Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. This is a reference to the reality that Jesus is the stone, who is the cornerstone, but who is also a stone of stumbling for any that Refuse to believe in him. Jesus is the one that would divide the entire world and the entire nation of Israel. They would be divided about him. They would either trust in him, believe in him, that he is the Messiah. Or they would reject him and stumble over him and so be destroyed. Jesus is the one who is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel. Now look also at the particular Prophecy in verse 35 given to Mary, almost as an aside. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also. So that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. See, Jesus is the Messiah of Israel. Jesus is the King of Israel. And Jesus is the final judge who will judge all of us. All of our hearts and thoughts will one day be revealed before him. He is the king and he is the judge. And all of us must stand before him and give an account for our lives. And we will either have to pay for the sins that we have committed. Or we will claim his blood, having had our sins washed away by faith in him and in his sacrifice for us. But look at this particular prophecy to Mary. A sword will pierce through your own soul also. Here's the anticipation of the tragedy of Jesus' ministry and death. Don't forget that while Mary is following God's leading, the calling on Mary's life is a difficult one. God is leading her and calling her to suffer for Him. And the suffering that she will experience when she sees him rejected, and when she sees him crucified on the cross, for she would be there, is a pain unlike any other, the pain of a mother 
having lost her own child, the child that she bore in her body. Here's a prophecy given to Mary. Mary, you are going to receive the piercing of a sword, a pain unlike any other. I wonder how you expect God to lead and call in your life. I wonder if you have hopes and expectations for the kind of life that you would like to have. Perhaps you regularly come with your expectations to God, just ready for him to rubber stamp them in terms of how your life would go. I know for a fact that the life that Mary had is not the life that she expected for herself. She might not have had many expectations, but I know she didn't expect this. She didn't expect to carry God himself in her womb, in the person of Jesus Christ. She didn't expect for her little baby boy, her firstborn boy, to be rejected by men and to be crucified on a cross and to have to have her own son be her savior. In light of this, look also at verse 36. The second person that recognizes the baby Jesus is another older saint, Anna, a prophetess. Luke seems to know all about her. He knows her father. He knows the tribe that she comes from says in verse 36 that she was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. Now, if you have the ESV there, you'll notice that there's a footnote. The footnote says, or as a widow for 84 years. Now, the smoothest reading of this is to say that she was a woman who had been a widow for 84 years, on top of the seven years that she lived with her husband, on top of however old she was when she got married. Which means, if that reading is right, she was more than 100 years old. Most translators, though, think, could this woman really have been over 100 years old? And so they just assume they don't quite understand the Greek correctly and assume, no, clearly she must just be 84 years old. Well, either way, whether she's 84 or over 100... It's another older woman. And do you notice, mixed into her story is tragedy as well. Not only is Mary a woman who would face tragedy, she is a woman who has experienced tragedy. She was married, and seven years later, her husband died, and she continued living as a widow the rest of her life. She experienced tragedy. Anna's life did not go as she expected. But do you notice how she responded to such tragedy? Did she become embittered and angry? Did she get frustrated at God? Did she accuse God of having done something wrong? No, she draws near to the Lord. She draws near to Him, and she devotes herself to God and to His service. She devotes herself to worshiping with, verse 37, fasting and prayer night and day. And she comes up and gives thanks to God and testifies to Jesus, to any who were waiting for the redemption of Israel. It's clear that Luke here is pointing to the ordinariness of Jesus' first entourage. He's pointing to the ordinariness of Jesus' first entourage. Can you imagine your hopes for a king? What kind of entourage do you expect that king to have? What kinds of people do you expect to be around him, to be pampering him, to be celebrating him and talking about him and raising him up? Is it an ordinary poor couple from Nazareth? Is it an ordinary old man, Simeon? 
in the temple. An ordinary woman, old woman, old widow named Anna. But do you see that these are God's people? These are the kinds of people that make up Christ's kingdom. Very ordinary people. People like you and me. Look around. Christ's kingdom is ordinary. All of us are pretty average and ordinary. But if we are trusting in Christ, we are members of God's family. And we are sons and daughters of the king. And our ordinariness in this world should not obscure what our future looks like because we will be in Christ's entourage, the king of everything, forever. You know, the church is a a gathering of the members of Christ's kingdom. And the gathering of the church should be similar to the kinds of people that are gathering around Jesus at the beginning of his life and his birth. The church is going to be made up of ordinary people like shepherds, ordinary older saints like Anna and Simeon, ordinary people that are poor, the down and outers. But this life that we have in this world is not to obscure for us the hopes that we have for eternity. If you're here and you are an older saint, I hope you're encouraged by this. That Simeon and Anna continued having useful, fruitful ministry and lives into old age. And do you know what much of their ministry was? Older saints. Testifying to God, to his salvation, and particularly focusing on Christ. Let me encourage you, older saints, to be taking part in this ministry of prayer and of testifying, of encouraging those that are younger and pointing all of us to Christ. Through your years of experience, even through your experiences of tragedy, sharing with us that God is good, that God is worthy of being worshipped and followed, and that the hope of heaven is sweet. That's point number three. Jesus is recognized. Point number four. Jesus grows in wisdom. Point number four. Jesus, I'm sorry, the king grows. And then in parentheses, in wisdom. The king grows in wisdom. Verses 39 to 52. Now we have a glimpse into not just Jesus' birth and those first eight days, but we get one little account of Jesus as a teenager, as a 12-year-old. Look at verse 39 and 40. When they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. Verse 40. And the child grew and became strong filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. It is remarkable and startling that that Luke focuses on this, that the baby Jesus, the King Jesus, had to grow, had to become strong, and had to be filled with wisdom, a demonstration that the favor of God was upon him. Look at the end there of verse 52, the end of our passage. Similar verse, and Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Jesus, the king, had to grow. Now, one little account about his life begins in verse 41. Every year, it says, his parents went to Jerusalem at the Feast of Passover. When he was 12, verse 42, they went up according to custom. Verse 43, after the feast was ended and they were heading back home, 
The boy, Jesus, stayed behind in Jerusalem, and his parents did not know it. But supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey, but then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem, searching for him. And after three days, they found him in the temple. One small application encouragement. Jesus' parents were ordinary parents. It looks like they had quite a few children, and they, at times, lost track of them. (laughs) If you're here and struggling with multiple children, take hope and take heart. The parents that God chose to raise Jesus were ordinary, and they made mistakes. And they even, at times, lost track of their children. Jesus stays behind in Jerusalem. He stays, verse 46, in the temple. And they find him there three days later, sitting among the teachers, verse 46, listening to them and asking them questions. In verse 47, all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. Now look at verse 48. His parents see him. They're astonished. And look at what his mother does. Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. Ah, the motherly guilt trip. As a parent, I understand this well. How could you do this to us? She reprimands him. One one small aside. Do you know that Jesus actually hadn't sinned here? Do you know that Jesus hadn't sinned? It's so clear from Scripture. Jesus never sinned. But yet his parents are disappointed in him and reprimand him. Imagine how hard it must have been to raise the perfect son, Jesus. Now, notice here, one small application as well. Not everything that we tend to want to reprimand our kids over is actual sin. This is a small application for us who tend to be easily frustrated by our kids, and I'm including myself in this. Not everything that annoys us or bothers us, not everything that our kids do are necessarily sin. We may want to discipline them for things that aren't sin. We may want to reprimand them for things that aren't sin. Let me encourage you, parents. I know that parenting is difficult and hard. It will stretch you more than you thought you were able to be stretched. Let me encourage you in your discipline of your children to be sure that you're disciplining for sin and not just for things that are personality or that are annoying to you. We encourage you to follow your heavenly Father in the way that he disciplines us. But look at Jesus' response in verse 49. He said to them, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my Father's house? In verse 50, they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. Now what is Jesus doing here? What is he saying to them? Well, he's making it clear that he has a different set of priorities as the Son of God. A set of priorities that involves him being devoted to his heavenly Father. And he seems to assume that his parents should have known this. Now, the remarkable thing is, verse 51, not that he has a different set of priorities... But verse 51, the remarkable thing is that he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. Now notice here, 
Jesus establishing his priorities. Well, he is a son to Mary and through adoption to Joseph. But he is not ultimately theirs. He is the son of God. And his father has plans for him that at times are going to be out of step with the plans that his parents have for him. But at the same time, do you see that he responds by submitting himself to them and honoring them? In doing this, he is obeying the fifth commandment. Honor your father and mother. And Luke is carefully marking down for us the places where Jesus is fulfilling the Old Testament law, fulfilling the commands of God. Time after time, even the boy Jesus, time after time throughout his life, Jesus is obeying God's law perfectly. This is what theologians have called the active obedience of Christ. So often when we think of our salvation, we think primarily in terms of his, what has been called his passive obedience, in, in that he delivered himself up to be crucified and to die in our place. And that is essential and of absolute importance. But before his passive obedience and his death for sinners like you and me on the cross, we have here his active obedience where he obeyed God's law perfectly from beginning to end. And one of the ways he does this is by obeying the command, honor your father and mother. Children, this morning, notice this. Notice Luke 2, 51. Jesus submitted to his parents. Jesus obeyed his parents. And he was perfect. He was perfect, and yet he still needed to submit himself and obey his parents to fulfill all righteousness. Let me encourage you, young people, follow Jesus' example in this way. And realize even when you don't obey your parents perfectly, Jesus did it. Jesus did it perfectly for you because you didn't do it and couldn't do it perfectly. But he did this in your place because he knew that you wouldn't do it perfectly. And he did it for you if you will repent of your sins and trust in Christ. Trust in his perfect life and in his sacrificial death for sinners like you and me. One thing that Luke is so clearly emphasizing in Luke chapter 2 is Jesus' humanity. Jesus' humanity is real. It's not a farce or play acting. He's not just pretending to be human. No, Jesus was both truly God and truly man. I think in our day and age, we can miss this point in Scripture. In our day, we tend to want to emphasize the divinity of Christ against those who want to call Christ just some mere human teacher. And so we're always wanting to demonstrate all of the places in the Gospels that make it clear that He is truly God, and He is. But do you know that there is an opposite false teaching, and an opposite heresy, a heresy that denies the true humanity of Christ. Turn really quickly, and in conclusion, to 2 John. 2 John, verse 7. Look at what the Apostle John says about false teachers like this. The very end of your Bible. 1st, 2nd, 3rd John. 2 John verse 7, 2 John verse 7. Many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh, such a one, 
is the deceiver and the antichrist. See, what Luke is establishing here is that while Jesus is truly God, he is the Messiah of Israel, he is the king, he's also truly man. He is a man through and through. And in this way, he needed to learn and to grow. He needed to mature and to grow in wisdom. And he did. And he did it so that he could sympathize with human beings like you and me and so that he could one day be that perfect and great high priest who could represent us perfectly as a human being to God and represent us before God as our perfect representative and offer himself on the cross as our perfect sacrifice. And then as the high priest stand at the right hand of the Father forever, offering to the Father his blood as a perfect high priest for sinners like you and me. Jesus is truly God, but he's also truly human. He may not be the leader that we expected. He may not be the king that Israel was hoping for, but he is the king. I wonder where you are with the Lord this morning. I spoke at the beginning about people's expectations for Jesus. But what are your expectations for God and for King Jesus in your life? What are your expectations this morning? Is God meeting your expectation? Perhaps you are disappointed that your expectations are not being met. Let me encourage you to have hope. God may be interrupting your plans so that you would abandon your own personal hopes in this life in order to find all of your true and actual hopes fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. Hopes that would be fulfilled not just in this life, though in this life, but even more so in the life that is to come. Jesus is the king. His kingdom is real. Put your hopes in him. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Oh God, we give you praise for Jesus Christ, King Jesus, who came fulfillment of all your promises and prophecies, who came to be born as a man for men and women like us. Lord, we give you praise for his virgin birth. We give you praise for his ordinary nativity. We give you praise that he came for ordinary people like us. We pray that we would embrace him, all of us, as our king and live today and for eternity to serve him. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. We get to stand now and sing our final hymn, All I Have 